Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. I do have the text that we will be studying there listed on your insert. Our focus today will be the last half of chapter 2. You will remember the first half of chapter 2 as we memorize much of it together. Verse 8 in particular, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Very simply, all things, all things are subject to Christ and his word. We are to live our lives based on Christ. We are to interpret the world around us based on what Christ has revealed. We are to judge all teachings we hear by the word of Christ, not the word of popular culture or godless people, but by the word of Christ. Verse 16 and following are poignantly relevant for us today as the thought of the first half of chapter 2 is now continued. Hear God's word, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for how it points uh, to the particulars of our life, how it gives us the answers we need. It is attended by the ministry of your Holy Spirit given in the context of your people. Lord, I pray that you would bless your people today with a new understanding or an enhanced understanding of your word, in particular this portion of your word, that we would be changed people as we go forth from here, bringing glory to you through Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses that I have just read warn us against religion specifically self-made religion. Now, I realize a pastor in a church, a Christian church, warning people against religion may seem provocative or even confusing. Uh, for this reason, as I begin this exposition of these verses, I want to define some terms. Now, when I say religion, what do I mean exactly? Now, here's an extended uh, dictionary definition. It's on the back of your insert. This is what you'll find in most dictionaries, or a reasonable facsimile thereof. Religion is the adherence to codified beliefs and rituals that generally involve a faith in a spiritual nature, in a study of inherited ancestral traditions, knowledge and wisdom related to understanding human life. The term religion refers to both the personal practices related to faith as well as to the larger shared systems of belief. Now, this definition 
includes following certain rituals because of what one believes. Concepts like codified beliefs, rituals, inherited traditions, systems of belief are all used to describe a religion. Now, it may be true that Christianity is categorized as religion. I would only say to you, those who understand what the Bible says about Christianity, that I don't think it's an accurate categorization to really just leave Christianity as a religion. A religion, for the most part, means following a system. And you don't even have to believe in God to follow that system. In fact, if you notice the definition, it says that following or adhering codified beliefs and rituals that generally involve a faith in a spiritual nature. So really anyone could be religious if they're disciplined about a certain practice or adhere to a certain activity or ritual or ceremony. Christianity is way more than that. Way more than that. In fact, the definition I would give for Christianity, I also have there on the back of your outline. This is my definition, and there probably, I'm sure, there are better definitions. But I think this embodies Christianity. It shows you how it's, it's different than religion. It's, it's different than what Paul is specifically arguing against here in Colossians. Christianity is based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ as revealed by the Bible. In summary, Jesus taught that union with him is the only way to have salvation from sin, a peaceful relationship with God, and eternal life. This is based on his living a sinless life, dying an atoning death, and rising again in our behalf. Union with Christ comes by faith in him. And we know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that faith itself is even a gift of God. So Christianity is about what Christ has done on our behalf in our union with the one who has done it, not our doing things in order to attain salvation. In fact, Ravi Zacharias said it so wonderfully. All the other religions of the world say do. Christianity says done in Christ. Religion can be practiced by anyone. Even people who have no relationship with God can be religious. It involves outward actions primarily. Christianity, in the biblical sense of the concept, can only be practiced or experienced through a personal relationship with Christ and then by extension his church. Religion, understood in this way, I say is dangerous. Dangerous to our spiritual growth. And that's what Paul is talking about. This adherence to all these outward forms. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying outward forms have no value. Certainly they do, as the Bible gives them value in assisting our faith in Christ. But outward forms, just as outward forms, are very dangerous, especially extra-biblical ones, ones that the Bible did not prescribe. You must be very careful about these things. This is what Paul warns the Colossians about. Spiritual growth, that which we all want to see happen in our lives, growth in our understanding of the one who created us through Christ, spiritual growth, comes from a relationship with Christ, not through outward adherence to religious practices. Now, before we go further, let's remember what the theme of Colossians is, building us up to these warnings that Paul gives us. First, the Colossian church was an infant church. A disciple of Paul, Epaphras, apparently brought the gospel there, and the church grew up out of that teaching. We know that Colossae in that time, where modern Turkey is today, had all sorts of people there with all sorts of beliefs and practices, very much like what we have today. Judaism definitely had a population there. Sects of Judaism was, were also present there, not just the pure Jewish form of the temple, but also add-on Jewish religions. There was angel worship. There were new aesthetic religions. There was mysticism, pagan worship. 
You name it, it was there and it could be had. But perhaps the most uh, loudly heard message, maybe not claimed by one preacher, was this, that we can have all these things and they can work together. Take your pick. Kind of a buffet of spirituality. Syncretistic religion. In other words, all these things are spiritual. All of them have validity. And so the Colossian believer is in a place where their neighbor is saying, hey, that's great what you believe. I believe this. And the other neighbor down the street saying, likewise, I, that's great what you believe. But guess what I believe? Or how about all these things together? Sounds familiar, I think. So what is the answer to this kind of syncretism? The preaching of the truth, which is the supremacy of Jesus. When the supremacy of Jesus is preached, all these other things stand for what they are, false and fading. So Christianity stands opposed to these things. It's in Christ. And so the theme of Colossians is the absolute supremacy of Christ. Listen to just a few verses in chapter 1, building up to what Paul says in the text we're analyzing today. Colossians 1, 13 and following. Hear God's word. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So now we're under King Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Paul, the apostle, leaves nothing to guess. There's no way that the neighbor in Colossae could say, yeah, that's true about Jesus, but my God. No, because all things are under his submission. Everything is given by Christ, made by Christ, made for him. Colossians 1, 17, and he is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. In verse 18, and he is the head of the body, an important metaphor that will come to play in our text today. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There is no way anyone could hear the apostle and think it's okay to put something else on equal ground with Christianity. In fact, not only is it not close to equal ground, it's so far subdued by Christianity. Because of Christ and his preeminence and his worth, his significance, what he has done, his merit, his being God. Later in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, a great missional verse, should be our mission verse as a church even. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You can't be presented mature in any other way. Maturity means in Christ. Paul, very explicit here, leaving nothing to guess as he builds up the believers, and we are built up today by it. The beginning of Colossians chapter 2, remember those words, verse 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great I struggle, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. In their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This is important because if the Colossian person, whether they're a believer or not, reads mystery, they think mysticism or they think of some way to attain to deity. And he's saying this is the answer to mystery, Christ. So Paul could not be mistaken here. Anyone picked up the book of Colossians anywhere at any time, I don't care how pagan you are, you'd see the thesis of this book is... Christ, the supremacy thereof. Colossians 2, 8 and following, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that is Christ, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and the rule of all authority. Colossians is about the supremacy of Christ over all. Christ is even supreme over all the religions and religiosity and religious practices of the world. Spiritual growth will only happen one way in Christ. Spirituality has always been the subject or focus of human beings. People want to grow spiritually. Unbelievers will say that. In Colossae, there are multiple ways to gain spiritual enlightenment. Just like in our day, they had all sorts of seminars and things that could teach you how to be enlightened, happier with yourself, healthier, uh, more enlightened, in tune with, uh, with God, and however you want to put it. All sorts of ways there for the Colossian uh, citizen to also attain spirituality. But here in Christ, we have the only real way one can grow. Even with all the admixtures of Judaism and Christianity and paganism and mysticism and all the various practices, Paul writes to make clear that true spirituality and true spiritual growth can only happen one way. It begins with a personal relationship with our Creator provided by Christ. And from there, we have our beginning of spiritual life. And then we move on in spiritual growth. It's the only way. I emphasize this to you, brothers and sisters, and take 10 minutes to do it, because that's the whole message of Colossians, and I'd say the Bible. And so if we don't start there, life in Christ... We will never grow spiritually, which I think is everyone here. Every one of you wants to grow spiritually. I'm convinced of that. You wouldn't be here. But sometimes we chase after, even as believers who supposedly know the answer, other ways rather than Christ. Well, spiritual growth comes from God through Christ. This emphasis is, again, in our text before us. And before we look at the specifics that Paul addresses, look with me at this fact that spiritual growth comes from God through Christ in the verses we are studying. Starting at verse 16, notice first. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festi a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, in Colossae, there were Jewish legalists, those who insisted upon the adherence of portions of the law that define what foods to eat and what drinks could be drunk, what festivals to be followed, etc. Now, we don't know specifically what they were teaching. We know some of it's rooted in the explicit components of the civil and ceremonial law for Israel, but some of it was an embellishment, more than even the Old Testament said. Either way, it had been surpassed by Christ, who's the substance of these shadows. Shadows had their value. There are reasons why the church participated in festivals before the time of Christ, participated in special Sabbaths. This is not a reference necessarily to the Sabbath mentioned in the commandments, but the special Sabbaths, whether it be for crops or special breaks that were taken, rest periods that were given to the people of God to point them to the rest they would have in Messiah. Well, now that Messiah is here, adhering to those particular do's and don'ts that were geared towards pointing you to the substance Christ no longer are necessary, yet there were some who were still saying to belong, to be a believer, you've got to adhere to these things. And Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink and so on. But look at verse 17. He reminds us where real spiritual growth comes from. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Substance is what makes you grow, not shadows. Substance. So growth comes from Christ. Look again, verse 18, the same concept coming through this text. Let no one disqualify you. Now after saying let no one pass judgment, now let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, 
In addition to the Jewish legalist types, there were other religious figures promoting various practices that promised to cause one to be more spiritual, uh, causing the body a certain level of suffering to be more like God or in union with a God, uh, denying oneself of certain things, saying that they had these experiences, these fantastic experiences, talking with angels and so forth, or seeing visions. And again, Paul brings back to this reality in the midst of the cloud of everybody telling you what to believe. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to look long and hard to find someone giving a message somewhere. Whether it be on television with that televangelist who has special revelation according to them, or some other kind of faith or sect or practice or philosophy taught, everyone's telling you some special knowledge you can have. Paul says, in the midst of this cloud of information, remember this. Verse 19. They're not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Christ, based on what we have already read in, in Colossians. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So unless something is connected to the head, it cannot grow. And the body of Christ is connected to Christ, and that's where the body of Christ, you and I as individual members, gain our growth from Christ. Not from any other plan outside there. Not from some new system someone discovered that God was not wise enough to have in Scripture and can help you now understand Scripture. Those are the worst kind. Pseudo-Christian answers. Where the Bible and my book will help you. You've got to be connected to the head who is Christ. That's where growth comes from. And Paul says this in the midst of all sorts of mixed messages. Our relationship with Christ is what we need. Our connection with Christ not religious practices as such. What I mean by this is that religious practices, whether they be biblical or extra-biblical, in themselves are not an end. In other words, we don't do certain things to attain. We do things, especially the biblical spiritual disciplines, because of our relationship with Christ, and it enhances. It doesn't bring us into relationship. We abide in Christ by His engrafting us into the body. This is the exact kind of language that Jesus uses metaphorically in John 15 when he says, abide in me and I in you. Is the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can only do a little bit. You can do nothing. So it's always wonderful when Paul's teaching exactly aligns with Jesus' teaching and the rest of the scripture. And here we have, again, a reminder, there's no other way to spiritual growth and maturity, my brothers and sisters, but through Christ. Finally, also to note in verse 20, this reality, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Paul has just reminded us of our union with Christ because of his death on our behalf. Remember back to chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him, that's Jesus, and us being buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you and I, brothers and sisters, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive together with him, Christ, in union with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In Christ, we are free from the rat race of striving to gain salvation by works. In Christ, we've been delivered from the never-stopping hamster wheel that never, ever stops rolling around of works righteousness. We are saved by the perfect work of Christ. And 
we grow spiritually because of the perfect work of Christ. This is so entirely important because it's common for us to think that Jesus has saved us on the cross. Now it's for us to spiritually grow. When in fact, what Jesus says and Paul affirms is that not only have we been saved by this great grace, but we grow in this same grace. The same thing we needed to save us is what helps us grow. We so often are so grateful for our salvation that we look everywhere else for the rest of our growth except the very place that gave us life to begin with. The substance belongs to Christ in verse 17. Verse 19, growth comes through connection with the head and is fueled by God. In verse 20, we have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Spiritual maturity will occur in relationship to Christ. Spiritual growth will happen as you come to know Christ more and more. And here's the key. This is what it's all about. Victory over the indulgences of the flesh will come as you draw nearer to Christ. Not as you make more and more rules to follow, but as you draw closer and closer to Christ, you are able to say no to sin. This is the essence of why Paul writes what he writes. Not just to point out false teachers, but to help believers stop sinning, to be more like Christ. What fuels stopping sin? Jesus. That's what fuels it. It's the only thing that works. Practically speaking, how do we abide in Christ, stay connected to Christ, be in relationship with Christ? Well, very simply, Jesus has given us his own word. He has given us his word that we might study it and make it part of our hearts in a way that it affects our thinking. We're renewed in our minds so that our action changes. I don't mean as just a, a, a rigid, cold, I got to read my verse today. And I'm talking a personal love letter to you from Christ here in his word. He gives us the church to emphasize the word, to encourage us in the word, to give us a fellowship with other believers. This is all part of abiding in Christ. He gives us the sacraments, not on our own magical powers, but rather God-ordained ways in which we are reminded supernaturally of what God has done for us in Christ. Not what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. And the natural response is to act in ministry and reach out as a body of believers. This is abiding in Christ in the most practical terms. Now let's look together at what threatens spiritual growth. We see what causes, promotes spiritual growth, how we grow in Christ. But notice what threatens it. And this, while it seems particular to this time, is as relevant as ever for us today. Because religion, in the way that we've described it, threatens spiritual growth. So beware. Notice there are two warnings in the text. See verse 16 first. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. Then in verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. Some commentators say it this way, that perhaps there are two different warnings given. They're not different in their essence, but they're different in who he's addressing. In other words, let no one pass judgment on you might refer to those fellow so-called believers in your midst who would judge you. They look across the pews and say, oh, and judge you. Whereas in verse 18, let no one disqualify you might refer to those outside of the church looking at the church and saying, huh, they did something, they're, just, they're not real, and disqualify you in their minds. So perhaps he's talking about, don't first of all let people in the church add on to the Bible and then hold you accountable to what they added on. And secondly, don't let people outside of the church determine what the Bible says or what God has revealed. Don't get sucked up into that or into pleasing people in some way. Worry about Christ and his law and his word. But then let's look at what is being warned against. First of all, 16 and 17 refers to, and this is what 
uh, bodes well for the argument is speaking within the church or the context of professing believers. Uh, these would be known to known believers, especially Jewish believers. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow. In other words, there's something to them. They're a shadow. All of these things are referenced in the Old Testament as part of the civil and ceremonial law, which was passed away with as Christ comes. They had value at a time, no question, still value in considering and looking at them. And notice how uh, the Ten Commandments, for instance, are not somehow nullified here. We're talking specifically about some civil or ceremonial components. And the Sabbath here should not be confused with the Lord's Day. This is with a Sabbath, a special Sabbath that are set up to depict the rest we will have in Messiah. And so you have here a reference to some who clearly were saying, hey, you've got to do these things. and You've got to adhere to these things in order to be accepted by God and by his people, no doubt. So we have to beware of such ceremonial or ritualistic religion that gives things that are not any longer applicable as signs of your salvation. And frankly, even those things uh, that are explicitly mentioned in Scripture, if we come to believe that it saves us by keeping them, we're still doing the same thing. But we'll get there in a moment. There's another reference in the greater part of this passage in verse 18 and following that speaks of something that might be somewhat foreign to our hearing. Let no one disqualify you in verse 18, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Now we're talking uh, about a more secular uh, paganism or religion. Uh, this is why verse 18 might be referring to not allowing people from outside the church to cast judgment on us. First, asceticism means self-denial, self-denial of various physical pleasures. The physical pleasures may not be wrong, according to Scripture, but some people say that by not partaking in them, they become more holy. That's kind of the basis of the monastic movement, even in Christianity. I'll take myself out of the things, uh, out of the world, and I'll, I'll self-flagellate myself, with, beat myself. Luther did that himself. Punish myself. That's asceticism. Do things that somehow would make me closer to God in my own imagination. And then judge others who don't do it. If you don't do it, then you're, you can't be as close to God. Worship of angels. This is a repetitive claim by some in those days, and Paul addresses this here and in other places. Uh, what they're saying is that they have angelic messengers who give them special revelation. Uh, what keys us to the fact that this is false is that they worship the angels because no true angel of God would ever allow worship to come to them. No angel ever has in Scripture. Always points to God. In fact, stops men when they bow. So this is an indication. This is false revelation they're claiming. And you understand why they use this. Uh, you remember, how did Joseph uh, become so confident that he could marry Mary? It wasn't just his, the goodness of his heart. It was because an angel of God came and told him, verified as an angel of God. Well, so you could see why people would claim that an angel told me this, now believe me. So he's warning against such revelations. And visions, you know, who can argue with someone's vision? You know, you even hear uh, crackpot Christian evangelists, and I'm talking supposed Christian evangelists, saying that God told them this or so. Well, who can argue with that? Especially the faithful who are following them blindly. Well, if God said it, you say God said it. Well, what would Paul say? Where did God say it? At any rate, he's warning against those who would claim such extra-biblical revelation, even extra-faith, I mean, outside-of-the-faith-even type of revelation. And he warns us against this because these things 
will ultimately lead us astray. But even more so, look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So you won't grow spiritually. Verse 20 asks the good question. If you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you still were alive in the world, do you submit to this stuff? So you can see the pastor in Paul writing and saying, I can't believe the beloved are falling for this. They trusted in Christ. They believed the gospel. They're striving after Christ. And now they're getting sucked up into these other things that are false. Why are you submitting yourself to these things? And then verse 23, which is key. Or excuse me, verse 22. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Talking about these different laws and legalisms that they're told to adhere to. And here is the key that puts it against everything else. According to human precepts and teachings. The same human philosophy. The elemental spirits of the world. Human precepts and teachings. They are never ever superior no matter how faddish they seem. And every new fad that comes along outside or inside the church has to be upheld or hold, held up against the scripture to see if it be true. Things will look popular, beloved. They'll look popular all the time. And you'll feel for a moment like you're not on the bandwagon. You're missing something. Maybe you are if it's related to something scripture teaches that we've missed. But normally it's just the latest, greatest thing that will come and will go. And we have to be aware that this is so. It's always been the case. But notice this is the bottom line, I think, for all of us who desire to grow spiritually but struggle against sin. Verse 23, here's, the, here's where it's at. These, these things, these legalisms, these things you follow, these things you do, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They may be popular in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, then who cares? I mean, that's my problem. It's my indulgence of my flesh. What it's saying is that only Jesus can help me with that. Not another book. Not another tape series. Not another seminar. Unless what they're doing is pointing me to Christ. That's who will help me with my great indulgence of the flesh. The goal of the Christian life is to become more and more like Christ. We do not strive to become like Christ to be saved. Rather, we are saved to become more like Christ. We're saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. The Westminster Confession does the best human job of quantifying what the Scripture says in this wonderful area of sanctification, which simply means sanctified to set apart as holy. It's a process because none of us got set apart yet completely. We're in the process. God's doing that. We're justified before God, but now the process of sanctification goes on. And listen to what the Shorter Catechism says so wonderfully about sanctification. Sanctification is the work of man. No. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled by God's power more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by grace. And just as the hymn writer says, it is grace that will take us home. It's all of God's grace. And here's the bottom line where the rubber meets the road and where it starts getting from preaching to meddling. Legalism cannot offer true victory over sin. I don't care how many rules you come up with, how many new disciplines you make up, none of them, unless they are pointed to the person of Christ, will help you beat sin. 
no matter how wise we are in thinking we can construct something, is if God was not wise enough or sufficient enough in himself to give us all we need in the Bible, we've got to add to it. Let me give you the definition of legalism because there's two parts to that definition. And you know what? We toss the term around too much. We need to know what it means. For instance, when I was working uh, at a bank before I uh, went to seminary, I was in a, in a group meeting and we had to have a business plan for our, our, our uh, supervisor and someone suggested we write something in there that was not true and I spoke up and said, you know what, we can't say that, that didn't happen. A fellow Christian in the group told me I was a legalist. Okay, that's not a legalist. I'm not saying I don't struggle with legalism, everyone here does, that's our default key, but that at that moment is not legalism, upholding God's law, okay? Legalism is this, and these are the two parts to this, the definition. Number one, the part that no one thinks of but must admit is legalism. Treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. In other words, when you do this, God, I could have told a lie in that moment and I didn't. What do I get? I hear laughing, but you know we do it all the time. In other words, but God, I could have done this. I could have said this about that person. I could have done that. Or there are students who are in school. You know, I didn't succumb to this pressure. So therefore, God, you really ought to bless me. That's legalism. You think you have the right to expect something from God for doing good works. That you have gained your, or gained status in front of God. You've gained his merit by obeying something explicitly says. That's legalism. Absolutely. Secondly, and what this text speaks to important, more importantly, or more poignantly, the erecting of specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in the church. This is the most common way. Uh, in other words, we have a system of rules that are sometimes explicit, sometimes not. Believe it or not, there's some churches that have explicitly uh, statements about church members not being able to drink, dance, smoke, or go to movies. Th those, that'd be legalism. Because you're now adding to Scripture that what Scripture does not say. Now, I'm not promoting any of those activities. You've got to weigh all such things according to Christ. But where on earth is that in Scripture that you would ap apply a greater, a greater standard to a person to join the church than God requires to enter heaven? It's remarkable how wicked that is. I was blessed when I heard uh, John Piper speak about something he had to do in a Baptist church, which is difficult. At least you're in a Presbyterian church. This isn't much of an issue. But 20 years ago, he had come to the conviction, and he personally, I don't know if he does now, but sure didn't at that time drink himself, alcohol of any sort. But he came under the conviction as he read the membership covenant of the church and said, why on earth are we adding to Scripture here when we're telling our members they cannot in any way participate in any kind of drinking of alcohol. And so he bravely, in my mind, took it to the, the eldership of the church, and they brought it before the church. It was a huge deal to get this changed. And it wasn't that he was promoting the activity, but he, what he was doing was defending against the sin of adding to God's word, which is wicked. It's just as bad for me to add to the word of God and follow that addition as it is for me to read the word of God and ignore it. It's just as bad. People say, no, it's not. You know, I'm just building a fence. Well, go build your own fence. But don't build it around the rest of us. This is important because it strikes at the heart of the gospel of grace when we say we have to add to the word of God. And we have to now put 
certain rules upon people so that we can judge whether they belong or not. And there are some things that are explicit and there are some things that are not. And I hope it is not so that if someone walks into our church and they say something a certain way or do something a certain way that our thought is, well, they don't belong. Or they shouldn't be part. God, help us if that would become true of us. Because these are not the standards that God gives us. There are basically two religions that all people of the world adhere to. Human attainment or divine accomplishment. When we obey God, that is actually a manifestation of divine accomplishment in a sinner. I am in no way speaking against disciplines. I'm simply saying that a discipline should be bore up out of your love for Christ, not as a means to gain his love for you. You can't earn it. I feel most sorry for those of you who are self-disciplined. That's not my particular personality. Now, don't get me wrong, I have to have some discipline, just as a person who's self-disciplined has to have some, if you will, spontaneity or however you want to put those things as opposite. But the self-disciplined person in the church has a very comfortable place because you can look really holy. You read your Bible regularly. You do certain things in a very disciplined, uh, particular way. And to everyone looking, it would look like you've got it together. And I think that there are a lot of people in that category who are far from God as you can imagine because they've come to believe that their disciplines has gained them status with God and in the church. Paul says, I don't care whether you're on that side of the personality spectrum or the other side. It is all growth that comes from Christ and being in union with him and free to serve him, saved to serve him because of his grace acting out in our lives. A friend of mine in seminary was at a picnic with his family in a local park not far from where uh, our seminary was. And he was there with his family uh, eating, and they saw a young woman pull up abruptly, a young, attractive woman jump out of her car and run to a picnic table. And it's 12 o'clock, so it was clear she was like on her lunch break. And here she is running to the picnic table, sits down at the picnic table, and the husband and wife started kind of smiling a bit and saying, remember that, us, way back? There, she's obviously going there to meet someone. It's a tryst of some sort. And they kind of thought about it, remembered back. And then the woman pulled out of her purse her Bible. And she opened her Bible and spent that half hour reading the scriptures. And there was a conviction that came over them that this woman would be so in love with Jesus that she would be compelled to take her lunch break and, and race there as though she's going to see her lover and spend that whole time. She didn't want to lose any moment with God. See, it's not that discipline in the word and these things are not important. It's that they come from a correct understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. Not to gain his love for us. That's an insult to the gift he's given us in his son. Now we respond with lives that hopefully reflect God's grace to us in Christ. This is exactly what Paul in the earliest possible, uh, probably the earliest epistle he wrote to the church in Galatia. He says to them, who had become believers, much like those in, in Colossae, he says, you foolish Galatians. How's that to start a chapter? You fools. Who has bewitched you? And he says, it's bewitching to have legalism. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Don't you know what he died for? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit that you're now being perfected by the flesh? I'll close with this great definition of legalism, and it's a warning to us as we consider God's word this morning. 
One author says legalism often tries to dumb down sin to a list of prohibited observable actions. Then the legalist can just keep the rules on his list and imagine that he is okay. And usually that everyone else is not okay. This misses the radical nature of God's holiness in the depth of our depravity, lessening our need and the total sufficiency of Christ. Listen, the reason why Paul gives this warning is he wants to see the people of God, you and I, grow in Christ. And just remember, whenever you're tempted to follow some other means or some other way, some other message, that those things have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and the severity of the body, but they are of no real value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for... Paul's admonishment here as it applies so vividly to each of us. Lord, we admit that we have a default mechanism, which is legalism. We default back to our works. We default back to how good a life we think we're living or what we compare like to someone else. Lord, forgive us for this and make us believe in the gospel anew that we, are, we, we cannot be nearly good enough, that it is only in the finished work of Christ and faith in him, a faith that you even give us, the humility, O oh Lord, that we need. Lord, it's that humility, it's that gift that sets us free to serve you, to love you, to race to the picnic table of our life and spend time with Jesus. Pray that we would be transformed by this love relationship we have, that we've been made partakers of because of your work through your Son and the application of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals now as the elders come to prepare the table to number 30. Our God, our help in ages past. Let's stand together and sing the first three verses. This is also a wonderful uh, hymn to sing in the brink of a new year uh, as we look back to our God, our help in ages past. Let's stand and sing the first three verses. <laughs> 